Thank you so much for joining us on Discover Economics, How Did I Get Here? So just who or what is an economist? There's an economic lens for every topic that you can possibly think of. The economists in our podcast are motivated by a desire to change the world and their belief that better data and better understanding are key to achieving this change. I'm very excited and enthusiastic about learning more about what economics can offer us as a society and what are the options when it comes to careers for young people. It's been an absolute delight to do this series and to learn more, to indulge my nosiness and to get to ask so many questions. The questions I'm hoping you as listeners will also have wanted to ask. So thank you so much for listening. So this week we have Lizzie Burden. Lizzie is a reporter at Bloomberg covering the Bank of England, the Treasury, the UK economy and trade. She previously worked at The Telegraph and The Times, presented Chrononomics TV and produced BBC Daily Politics. Lizzie is a regular guest on the BBC Sky News and Times Radio and has hosted events including for the Confederation of British Industry, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the Bristol Economics Festival and British American Business. Before journalism, Lizzie was a fashion model across five continents for eight years. And while living in New York, she assisted in the production of documentary films, including Gerald R. Ford, broadcast by National Geographic, and PBS's American Experience series. Um, She graduated in history from the University of Cambridge. And there are already a million questions for me from that bio. Welcome, Lizzie. It's lovely to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem. So I'm going to dive right in. We're going to take a little, this is when I do my virtual wiggly screen, going back in time, which for you isn't that long ago because you're super young. But I want to take you back to where you grew up and what were you like at school? A big nerd. So I was born in Manila in the Philippines. My mum's Filipino and my dad's Mm. British. And we moved to uh, the UK when I was one. And I grew up in Wilmslow, uh, down the road from Ben. And I went to state school for primary. And then I got a scholarship Mm. to go to Withington Girls, which is one of the best uh, independent schools in the country. Amazing. Yeah, I was just so lucky to go there. And speaking of my nerdiness, I remember distinctly walking around with a suitcase on wheels, backpack, um, and running over the Latin teacher's feet. And she wasn't mad because it was me, the nerd. So that's the kind of kid I was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was just saying to my niece the other day that in my final year at secondary school, I used to go into the staff room and make myself and the teachers cups of tea. And she just was horrified, like rolled her eyes (laughs) at me. Like, oh, that's so uncool. I said, yeah, but I got free tea and biscuits. So who's the loser, really? Yeah, I think we would have been friends. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, so what what were you interested in at school? What kind of subjects did you focus on? I did maths, history, economics and politics A-level. And I did Latin and Greek in addition for GCSE and French because you had to. Wow. So I, I did like languages, but I didn't take them on. But I wasn't particularly one way or the other numerate, literate, but I... Oh, well, I was hopefully both, but, you know, not not that I was (laughs) biased one way or the other. But I really wasn't into science if I was going to make a broad sweep. That was not for me. But, yeah, I like to write and really I was thinking about it. I like I like learning about the adult world. I was an only child. So, um, you know, the conversations at home were about uh, how the world worked. And that's really what was interesting to me. That's amazing. And then, of course, because you started modelling quite young, 
you got even more, you know, you got the chance to travel and, you know, thrust into quite an adult world. So when I was 17, I marched into a modelling agency in Manchester and demanded that they sign me because uh, I needed, nice. a, I wanted to have a gap year and I couldn't face the idea of working in a supermarket for six months and then going traveling and doing all these cliched gap year things. It, it was brilliant. You know, it, it, was, it was an adult world. I got to work with amazing designers and creatives across the spectrum. And I did have to grow up quickly, but it was great when I got to university, I'd already done that. That's amazing. That must have been such an, yeah, like educational experience, like makes it sound really boring. But the way you're describing it, because I, I think, again, I think we sound a bit similar in this. Like I just, love learning new things and having a new experience like if someone phones me up tomorrow and goes right we're gonna do this thing for a few months do you want to come I'll be like yeah let's do it (laughs) you know yeah it sounds like that was you at that age I think it's a bit like why I want to be a journalist I do like being a fly on the wall to things and I couldn't see myself being a model forever but to have a front row seat into this amazing industry I wasn't gonna say no to that no absolutely not and you know there's all obviously all the international travel and all that other stuff that goes along with it but what an amazing learning experience when did you finish your modeling and and kind of step back into academia if you like so it was only ever meant to be a gap year uh and I went and if I'm honest uh the reason I started modeling was because I was so heartbroken I didn't get into Oxford um that I wanted to stick two fingers up at them and reapply to Cambridge and (laughs) I, I got in thankfully um the next year and well done thank you went off to do history And I carried on modelling throughout university to help me pay the bills. And then after university, uh, I wanted to move to New York. It was my only ambition as a 21-year-old. And it was my ticket to a a visa for the US. Um, So I did it for another bit of time whilst working in documentary. So modelling was a ticket for me to many things. That's amazing. So the documentary filmmaking and that that side of things and the journalism, that was happening all at the same time. Yeah, I'm one of those people I just can't do one thing and <laughs> be happy with it. I can definitely relate. Yeah, I mean, I'm, that's why I like Bloomberg. I'm kind of doing lots of projects at, at once and they don't think I'm a loony. But that's certainly what I was like before. It just keeps me stimulated. Yeah, I wonder, I got diagnosed with ADHD last year at the ripe old age of 40 and it's helped explain <laughs> quite a lot of that similar yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, I have these wonderings like, about that's myself. why I need to have seven things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. Um, I mean, this sounds amazing. Just there, there's so many questions. I don't know if we're going to get through them in an hour, but I'll try and focus on the economic side of things. And then hopefully we'll be able to convince you to come back and answer more questions. Um, but the whole the whole thing um, about Discover Economics is that, you know, economics as a field really benefits from getting people with lots of different life experiences coming into it. And you, like Ben, as a journalist, have that kind of, again, like you said, the fly on the wall viewpoint of economics as a as a sector, as an industry, as a career for some of the people that you interview and you talk to all the time. So in your time kind of uh, focusing on on like the Bank of England and economics, because like I said, you do a lot of things, it's not just one. But you're looking through the lens of economics for quite a lot of the say interviews and 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 journalistic pieces that you've worked on. What's your viewpoint over the time frame that you've been working parallel? What's your viewpoint on the industry and diversity within the industry? Well, as a female, 
I, I do try to quote female economists more, but it's not always possible. And I don't always want to just talk to them about female issues. I want to talk to them um, about any old issue uh, because, you know, we want to get that perspective. But it is something that came, that was really highlighted to me by the Claudia Sarm blog last year. I don't know if you saw it, but she was talking about the state of the debate in economics and it can be particularly hostile on Twitter. Um, And that was something that I walked into. So I started at the Telegraph and it was right in the middle of the Brexit debate. And uh, I, I was getting really horrible criticism on Twitter. And it spoke to what Claudia Sarm would later complain about. And she just said, it can be very male dominated and it can be brutal, the criticism that people get. And maybe Mm. when you're in a lecture theatre, that's just intellectual sparring. I'm used to that at Cambridge. That was actually something that I loved. But when it's on social media and it gets, and a load of trolls jump on that bandwagon, it can be really horrible. Um, So I have interviewed lots of economists from diverse backgrounds Aaron came on Coronanomics and we've had Esther Duflo on our YouTube programme, Coronanomics, uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist, a woman. Um, And again, on Coronanomics, we made an effort to balance it um, and constantly have female voices, other diverse voices. But I, I am aware that it's not necessarily as making as much progress as one might like. Yeah, and it's funny you say that um, about coming at it from a journalist point of view, because obviously as a journalist, you're expected to be visible and public on social media quite a lot. And, and that obviously brings with it all of those things that you've described. One of the things that's come up actually when I've been doing this podcast is I'm obviously looking for, you know, I'm doing my research before I interview people and I'm looking for, for how active people are on social because then it makes it easier for me to learn a little bit about them what are they passionate about you know etc before I talk to them and one of the things that I've talked to a number of people about is actually it comes up a lot when I talk specifically to black women on the internet who there's a whole corner of the internet you know that is vitriolic in that there's part of their psyche that you know they feel like they want to be visible because it helps young black women to say like look here's someone who looks like me and they're in the public eye and they're doing that thing that I want to do. And that's amazing. And they want to, you know, blaze a trail for them to follow. However, you also have to take care of your own mental health. Putting yourself in that position is, yeah, it's it's opening a lot of doors to negativity that can negatively impact you. And that doesn't help anyone either. And of course, as a journalist, you there's there's different pressures on you. But I was thinking about it from the perspective of an economist and trying to be visible in that space, in that like very white male, upper middle class, middle class. You know, there's a number of non diverse labels that we could put on the majority of people who work in economics as a field. And I wonder, I'm very protective when people come up and say, "You look a certain way. You have a certain background." you must speak up, you must be visible, because that's going to make it easier for other people to get involved. And I personally, I want to flip it around a little bit and put more pressure on the employers and the institutions to protect people who they need to be visible. Does that make sense? It does. I should say that when I was at The Telegraph, I used to get hatred on Twitter because because I work for the Telegraph, apparently I caused Brexit. Oh, excellent. But then at the same time, for the same story, below the line on the Telegraph, on the comments section, they would hate the Remainer. 
that I must be because I was young female, you know, mixed race. They would say, go back to the fashion section. But the important thing is the reason I'm using social media is because I want to spread awareness of the stories I'm writing. 100%. I don't generally tweet my opinions. That's not my job. I am a reporter. I might, I might put in some analysis, but I'm not a columnist. So I don't see it as my role to be putting my opinions everywhere. And in general, I find that LinkedIn is a much friendlier place and it's also a more professional place. And I, I think it's great for students as well. I see lots of people posting their achievements, humble bragging. I'm all for that. Yeah. But in terms of networking, it's great for students. It's great for me as a journalist. I get lots of people who are interested in my stories and maybe want to add an angle because it's affected their business or something. And they'll write to me privately. And then that's the next story that I write. So um, there's definitely a difference between the media. That's really interesting because, I mean, I hear exactly what you're saying about LinkedIn. And it's something that I've, I speak at school sometimes just about digital skills and, and also like, don't fear technology. There's a lot of benefits. And um, thankfully, that conversation's moved on a lot um, since the last time I had to speak to a school. But one of the things I always pushed was LinkedIn because, you know, you can approach people and find out how did they get here, you know, and and if they're doing something that you're interested in, you can maybe ask them questions about it. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. And I also love what you said about, you know, you don't need to give your opinion on something necessarily in social media. You're sharing your stories to get to get them out into the world. And that's something that strikes me as being very similar to the economists I've spoken to about their research. You know, they are neutral about it. They go into it from a place of, I want to collect as much information as possible to get the best um, data. And then I'll report on the data that I have. I'm not editorialising the data, I'm getting it together and and putting it forward. Let me take a step back a little bit, actually, because it sounds like you did um, economics. Economics was a subject you studied at school. And like you said, you did a lot of languages. Then you did history at university and you had all of these things happening kind of simultaneously. What was it that kept you interested in economics as a subject and 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 then and then reporting on it and being so entrenched um in that area especially for the UK so when I was at school I won this essay competition for the Royal Economics Society uh the young economist of the year I love it and um, I'd done an essay on game theory thank you got a thousand pounds which was a lot to a 16 year old yeah um that is amazing thank you now I went to Melbourne for the summer on my money um but I did this essay on game theory applied to the dating game and it was just it's just one of my proudest achievements as a when I was a young person and um through my degree I always picked economic history modules even though I wasn't studying the math side of economics it was I like to read about the theory through the events of history and then I wasn't really connected to economics professionally for a few years when I was working in documentary I was doing historical documentaries but not economics but I was reading economics books in my private time. And then after documentary, I took an odd turn and I worked at Aldi, um, the supermarket, and did their graduate scheme um, as an area manager. So in the southwest of England, and it was bringing it back to supply and demand and um, just, you know, all the things that I had been learning in economics at school. And then 
Uh, after that, did a bit more modelling, but decided that I wanted to be a journalist. And I always mm. knew that I wanted to do politics or economics. But I kind of found that everybody's got an opinion about politics. And with economics, some of the political journalists are saying that really makes my eyes glaze over. It doesn't happen that way for me. And it's a worldview. It's a bit more black and white. Not that there isn't a debate there, but it's grounded in the numbers. And if the numbers warrant it, it will be the front page. Uh, You know, it is the worst recession in 300 years. And in that way, it's a bit more meritocratic. If you land a great scoop in economics journalism or financial journalism more generally, it should, it's going to be on the front page because it moved the market in a big way. So profound, um, having been lucky enough to get my gigs in economics journalism, it's worked out for me. I, I absolutely love covering it. So I don't know how it happened, but I, I do enjoy it a lot. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. I love how you talk about that. Because something that's come up in some of the other um, interviews that we've done is talking about how everyone, you know, when you say politics, like everyone has an opinion on politics. And, and actually, to me, politics is something that you use as a lens to look at various things. And, and actually economics is as well but it's so interesting the way you described it just now as being like you said slightly less sleazy like because even if people have opinions on it it's not so personal like even though the economy is a very personal thing the way I think people talk about it and think about it they don't personalize every outcome let's say versus how we might feel about politics. There is nonetheless a personal element to it so when you're talking about the pandemic and the recession, um, you've got all these people who are unemployed and all these human cases to go and talk about. Um, And so it's not just numbers. Uh, You know, I'm still writing long reads where I'm doing really heartfelt interviews with people about their situation. And at the end of the day, the thing that they really care about is being able to put food on the table before anything else. So that's why Again, I, I think it's it's a worldview, but it's the number one thing. Um, in, it's just the way I see things. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's something that's come up before as well. We had Andy Haldane on um, while he was still at the Bank of England. And what we were talking about with him is when he went out outside of London <laughs> and into communities and talked to them about the economy. And it's like, oh, I can't remember what year this was, but it's in the episode, guys, if you want to go back and listen, um, the, where he talked about, you know, he was going into communities and saying, you know, the recession's over. What is happening for you? And the people in the room would be like, what are you talking about? Like, not here, love. <laughs> like, that's not what's happening here. And how valuable that was to him. And, and it is like... I love hearing experiences like that and how important he found that to be. And obviously he brings that to a certain group of economists that hopefully if they've not thought about doing that, will shift them towards doing a little bit more of that, of getting out into the communities that, that like I say, the, that are represented by these numbers. But I suppose that what it it does is the, the way you described it just now, that you know people want to put food on the table. They want to have a job. They want to have a good quality of life. They want a better future for their children. Those things are kind of universal, no matter your political leaning, no matter the newspaper you read, no matter, you know, so many things. But I I do wonder if we wouldn't all benefit from looking through things through the lens of economics and rather than politics a a lot of the time. And something that I talked to Ben about is, I think for, for The Independent, he'd done a couple of videos that were looking at 
an economics and outcome, let's say, but like looking at something that was in the news about the economy and just breaking it down so that everyone can understand exactly what it means. And that kind of economics literacy, I think, is a vital part of getting more people into the field because it can be intimidating. 100%. And that was the goal of Coronanomics that Ben and I co-presented, really to make economics as accessible as politics and through, we were focusing on the pandemic, as the name would suggest, the whole way through, but breaking it down so that someone with an interest but not a degree in economics would in, would understand it. Um, and like Ben, I made lots of videos at The Telegraph and still do at Bloomberg, even more so now, explaining these issues. Um, and, and it's important to not get stuck in the jargon. And I think that's part of the difference between an economist and an economics journalist, because we're doing that communication you know, on the one hand we're taking the stories from people and reporting them with the hope that someone like Andy Haldane will read it and integrate it into his policy making on the other hand we're taking what Andy Haldane is saying in a speech for the Bank of England and translating the details of it for the everyday reader or for the trader that might want to make some money off the decision. Yeah and arguably you guys actually have much more of an impact over whether children will come up in the world wanting to be an economist because you've done the hard work of actually explaining <laughs> more about economic literacy than necess- than some economists will because they don't have that public-facing side, not all of them, certainly. Because that's something that's come up. We've spoken to economists who their research focuses on LGBTQ issues or family economics, domestic violence, you know, and, and um, international, you know, um, the environment, like just so many different ways of using economics as a way to research an issue. But arguably, that's not what's in front of people in the news. So having people like yourself bringing that to the public public attention arguably could have a much bigger impact on whether we see more students um, from diverse backgrounds going into it as a field. How does that feel? How does the pressure feel? Uh, it's fun. Um, <laughs> I think it's a bit of a shame that if if you only see economics as Bank of England decisions or inflation reports or the PMIs or um, just these numbers that come out regularly, that's not all it is. And as I say, it's about the human stories. It's um, it's about what's happening in the real economy, in wages, uh, people's jobs, that careers that they've spent their lives building towards. And as, and as you also say, it's the different lenses that you can apply to literally anything. I, I mean, there's this book by Ryan Bourne, Economics in One Virus, and he explains the pandemic through the lens of economics um, kind of to teach you. It's a great, I would recommend it. It's a great kind of introduction. Yeah, we'll share it in the notes. Oh, I also want some links to the videos that you've done to share in the notes as well. Oh, uh, thank you. Because I know that there'll be teachers listening going, yeah, it's all right. You've spoken about those videos, but where are they? So I'll, I'll <laughs> put them together and put them in the description for everyone, if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, I did this like, interview with Angus Deaton, um, the Nobel laureate, about his book, Deaths of Despair. And we were talking about a wealth tax and how that would work um, in order to pay for all this spending that we've done. And thinking about you know the unintended consequences of something like that um not just oh you know it's not right to tax well rich people more you you, you don't need to you, you can go through the more logical arguments of it when you start from the position of economics 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's like that thing of, of keeping it personal, but sometimes taking the emotion out of the decisions. So you've done so many different things. And as I mentioned earlier, you're super young. So <laughs> there are a lot of decades of other stuff that we expect. Hope so. <laughs> going forward. <laughs> yeah. Like no pressure, but you know, we want to keep going at this trajectory is what I'm saying, Lizzie. Um, <laughs> but, but what would you say so far that you're most proud of? just for yourself, career-wise, etc. And then I'm going to ask the question again, but in a slightly different way. So I'll let you have a think about that. Um, not because there are so many things to pick from, just that it feels like things have built really slowly and mm. it's not one thing in particular. It's I've been working hard for a long time and I just feel really privileged to be able to do what I'm doing to have the skills across media to be able to be presenting for Bloomberg TV something about uh, what to expect from the Chancellor's budget to be able to interview Nobel laureate economists and at least hold my own in the conversation with them and have the access to them. But through the pandemic, I'm really proud that I have gone out there and spoken to people and heard how they have really been affected. And I'm not just sitting at home covering the numbers, as I'm saying, you know, I'm trying to report the real story behind the numbers all the time. And someone is letting me do that. Bloomberg is paying me to do that. What a privilege. But also, you are such a valuable voice in there. Like, on, people like me are very grateful that you are in there doing that. Because genuinely... Thank you. I, you know, I honestly mean it because I, I think that having, like, specifically you, because that's the thing, you, you come with, a, you know, you come with all of your experiences and that obviously impacts how you report things and the voice that you bring. And I think it, particularly your voice is very valuable. So I'm quite grateful for that too. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, working at Aldi, you know, I, I literally stacked shelves and sat on the till and, mm. you know, you, you worked your way up to be the area manager, but you had to start doing that. When I was reporting on the impact of the pandemic on retail, have been in the, the shelf stacker's shoes, you know, forced to deal with the public day in, day out. Can you imagine doing that in a pandemic? I'm glad that I did that back then so that it added to my reporting now yeah it's just a privilege to be doing what I'm doing the, the in terms of things that have had impact that I'm proud of <laughs> I, I interviewed some Ghanaian banana farmers about how important it would be to get a trade deal with the UK because there was a bit of a delay and it turned out in the end that pressure apparently um helped to bring the momentum to actually get a trade a post-Brexit trade deal UK Ghana that's amazing. Yeah. And when the Ghanaian banana farmers write to you and thank you, I felt amazing. And it's little things like that that happen, you know, quite often that you just think to yourself, I'm really, really happy that I do my job. Yeah. I mean, that is amazing. As a journalist, then, I just want to, to kind of flip that question slightly. Maybe not just what, what are you most proud of, but what's been, this will be hard to pinpoint one, so I don't mind if you if you want to um, maybe word the question kind of differently for your, for your answer, but, you know, who, who have you interviewed that, say, has stood out to you the most for whatever reason? Let's put it that way. I really always love picking up the phone to Jim O'Neill. So he's a 
the former chair of Goldman Sachs Asset Management. He used to be a treasury minister. He's Northern, which is one of the best things about him. And, uh, you know, he's a diehard Man United fan. He has brilliant ideas about things. He sees things in different ways. And, you know, he's been a champion of the Northern powerhouse. And, you know, this, this is become the top of the agenda, the levelling up agenda. Um, And so, you know, we'll have really interesting conversations about things that, ideas he has, like he wanted to change the Bank of England's target from inflation to nominal GDP, because in the wake of the pandemic, he didn't think that it was as relevant to be targeting inflation anymore, because we're into this whole new phase of the debate, well, we were at the time, where we were considering negative interest rates, because in order to encourage people to spend their money, the interest rate was already so low that they couldn't cut it any further without going negative. Um, So he was saying, scrap that, let's go from inflation into nominal GDP. Let's think about the growth of the economy rather than inflation. So every single time I I call him, I I just enjoy hearing someone who sounds like me, but who's got a sense of humour and does does economics with a smile. Yes, that's good. I mean, that's been my privilege actually doing this podcast is like interviewing people like you say who do economics with a smile and aren't afraid to have those kind of interesting ideas, not necessarily just doing things how they've always been done. That's so fascinating. I can just imagine the two of you kind of sitting down with a cup of tea and a, I mean, if it, if it was back home, it'd be a rich tea biscuit. I don't know if it'd be the same <laughs> in Manchester. But <laughs> well, the other person who's just sprung to mind that I spoke to recently was the chief executive of Pret. Now, when I'm in the office, I will eat a Pret almost every day. I'm quite boring. No, I support that. Yeah. We were talking about how the world will look with more working from home. And it was just so interesting to speak to someone who literally his business depends on how many days a week people go back to the office um and so you know to to speak to someone who runs a company that you walk past more than once if you work in the city of london every single day that's a privilege Absolutely. See, this is why, I mean, I, I'm going to frame this into a question, but but just from what from everything you've said so far, and this is why we could definitely fill more than an hour, you know, the, the, all the things you've described, like if you take things right back to the beginning, like you said, your kind of curiosity and, and interest in economics and interest in all of these subjects are kind of, you know, the foundation that everything else is built on and kind of taking you to these places. And so, if you were to define, let's say, economics for, for young students who are thinking about it as not just their future careers, but maybe just thinking about it as a subject that they can embrace and then use as a lens to look at other things, um, how would you define it for them as you see it? The textbook definition, but I do actually think that it applies, is it's about how people manage their wants and desires in the face of scarcity. When they've got a load Mm. of choices, but things are scarce, what are they going to choose? And and that, when you break any economic story down, is what it comes to. Yeah. That's a textbook definition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but you're right. It doesn't... Well, it's funny because I speak in cliches all day, but I always say, well, it's a cliche because it's true. So... <laughs> well, the one thing that I really didn't want to say is that it's all about work because it's not. You can talk about 
anything that doesn't involve work and still be talking about people's incentives and choices. And that's why economics is so helpful. Absolutely. And that thing about incentives and choices, I think, is is really important because that's come up in a number of interviews. I mean, right back to the first um, episode with Rachel Griffiths, where we talked about her research into obesity and why people make the decisions they do about food and about produce and all those kinds of things. It's exactly as you've just described. And, and you know, that, that will be the same where you make a judgment call about which job you might go for or whether you leave your job or whether you move or whether you have children like every single decision in life you know it it comes down to these things and for young people what would you say is valuable about like an uh and having economic um economic literacy well because you're going to be making choices all the time i mean that essay i mentioned that i wrote for the royal economic society applied game theory to the dating game you make their choices that you may be making i mean i will point out that that (laughs) was way before Tinder. It was way ahead of its time. Um, But you're going to be making decisions about which A-levels you're going to study, which courses you're going to do at university, you know, which friends you're going to make, which internships you're going to apply for. And everything that you do is going to have unintended consequences. It's going to have things that you miss out on because you chose one path instead of the other. And you you need to weigh weigh it up. And there are also going to be other people involved in those things. And it's helpful to understand how they're making their decisions. So it will give you a logical worldview of how to make all these decisions that come up in your life. I love it. And I bet there are some students out there like in listening to this or some parents listening to this and thinking about their child and how they argue with them um, already in that I, I bet they're that understanding that every single argument you make, and I use argument not in the kind of negative term, but you know, the discussion that you might be having, that there are so many different factors and unforeseen, you know, outcomes and things like that, that knowing that doing economics and having that kind of literacy in economics will give you a good foundation for understanding kind of where other people are coming from and exactly like you say, how people make decisions and why. I mean, I was already interested in economics before I've I've volunteered to do this podcast, but I tell you what, I've learned so much. And it's when you said about reading some of these books for for fun in your free time I was like yeah that's me like <laughs> because it, it it's it, you know it's a valuable use of your time it's interesting and it gives you something that you can use and apply to so many different things so my final question just before I let you escape because I imagine it's very strange for you being a, the journalist side and and having some random who is not a journalist ask you questions so weird <laughs> well I really appreciate your patience with me um, but my my final question is, um, so what advice would you give to teachers and parents who are kind of talking to young people economic, about economics as an interest um, or a career? And ju- I just want to throw something in here before before you answer in that I, I used to teach FE. And I was all I always used to say to people, look, it's the naughty kids and the kids that are really challenging that I used to love. Because they're the ones that I really used to feel like you're gonna do something interesting. Like I know you're a pain in the bum, but you're probably gonna do something really interesting with your life. Or at least I hope you will. But I would definitely think about economics as being a subject that you could point some kids towards that maybe they they may be slightly less direction than the other kids in your class or 
than their siblings. Economics is a good place for them to be, actually. And obviously their their skills and interests will have an impact on that. But I, but it's not a bad direction to prod people in when you feel like, yeah, they're not sure what they want to do next. It, it's it's not a bad shout as far as I can see. But what do you think? What, what would you, what advice would you give? Whatever it is that you love, it's going to be a business. So I may have worked in fashion, but there's a whole business of fashion behind it and it can't hurt to do an economics degree if you're scratching your head about what you should be doing at university you're bound to learn something about the way the world works and how the business of something you love works by studying economics frankly it pays well the jobs that come out Mm. of it it's not said that much I guess but financial journalism actually does pay pretty well and it's a complete myth that you have to be broke if you're a journalist and I mentioned that I had a scholarship I'm not from a really wealthy background it matters to me what I earn Um, I want to be able to provide for a family one day and so it's it's a smart decision to make as well and if you if you want you can go and do things that really benefit the world you know you could work for a massive organization like the world bank or the un or you could be an economist at the treasury you know i I know people who were behind the furlough scheme and making the levers of that work in really rapid time and they made a huge difference to all those people whose jobs were on the line because of lockdown. So isn't that inspirational? And if you're even vaguely interested in anything that we've talked about, read Freakonomics, because it's hilarious. Mm. It applies economics to things like sumo wrestlers, and I think handing out free donuts, and why that's actually better than paying for them. And um, that's where I started getting interested in it. And I watched the film A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe, And, you know, it's thinking about how these theories can just apply to real life. And um, once you start getting into it, you'll graduate onto reading The Economist and you'll start finding the FT, the Financial Times more interesting. And you'll find yourself eventually when you read the newspaper, opening it in the middle of the Times rather than on the back pages at the sport. (laughs) And it's like Russian literature. Somehow you'll find yourself actually enjoying this thing that was really difficult to understand at first. And then you'll start to realise that maybe power actually lies with corporations and it's money that's making the world go round. And once you can understand that, it will help you to make a difference in your career. And in in life and make a difference to the rest of the world. I mean, not to put too many pressure on everyone listening, but (laughs) come on, guys. There's a lot of work to be done. I'm just a journalist, but there are, you know, there are people who you've had on this podcast who are doing big things and um, really shaping the world that we live in. And, you know, if you study economics, it's a gateway to doing that. Yeah, I I'm, I mean, I object to that term, just a journalist. You're not, because I think that what you do is incredibly valuable. And there's an awful lot of journalists, not not in this space, but, you know, who are shaping the world and society in a slightly different way that maybe is less beneficial and useful let's say but I think that well I mean number one thank you so much for your time and for living through what must be quite a painful experience for you having um, someone else interview you (laughs) (laughs) so I really appreciate it and uh, we're hoping to get you know some questions from students and teachers for the next season so if you're available we'd love to get you back in and I bet people have some really interesting questions for you that are much better than mine Um, (laughs) if you'd be up for coming back Yes, yes, definitely. Fingers crossed.
And that's that for that episode. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to get in touch with any questions, please visit our website, discovereconomics.co.uk, where you'll also find loads of useful resources. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review. Also remember to subscribe through whichever podcast app you're using so that you always get any new episodes as soon as they're published. See you on the next episode. 